Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2017 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 30th of September and 1st of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Independent filmmaker So Yong Kim discusses how she works with experienced and inexperienced actors to bring her characters to life and keep the chaos alive on set. Welcome, So Yong. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to kind of pick up from where So left off in her keynote yesterday. Um, She's managed to make four feature films <clears throat> over a not a particularly long period of time, I think, which was In Between Days, which we saw in the keynote yesterday for those of you who were there, and then Treeless Mountain, and then Four Allen, and then lastly Love Song. And then since then she's moved into television, which I think Esther said yesterday. So we're going to touch on television, and we're going to move through her films and just meander talking about process a bit but picking up after In Between Days, which I think you beautifully managed to um, reveal to us how you were kind of finding your way through with that film. Um, in fact, you said a line yesterday which was, I didn't know what I was supposed to capture, which I think is really um, liberating for people to hear. And also that you were mining um, and discovering emotional moments. So my question to start off with is in the space between In Between Days and Treeless Mountain, what had you learnt and what was uh, propelling your kind of curiosity and what were you sort of chasing as you were developing and then moving into Treeless Mountain? Yeah, I think for me, making In Between Days really gave, gave me the confidence to move on to make Treeless Mountain. And I think yesterday in my short, uh, smaller group session, I talked about how the genesis of Treeless Mountain existed even before In Between Days. I wrote a short story about two young children who catch grasshopper and they grill it and eat it and they make some money on the side. So um, I wrote that in my creative writing class I was taking in New York. And then um, in between days, in a way, because I edited the film afterwards, we shot tons of footage on this video camera, about 40 to 50 hours, I can't remember. But um, I kind of had to learn how to put a story together from this footage I got. Of course, we had these wonderful material, um, but it's like it was so much stuff in between, um, hours and hours and stuff to go through. So I think in um, the process of editing that film really helped me learn about how to structure a narrative. Mm. So um, after that experience, I think it gave me more confidence to write Treeless as a feature film and take next steps. And what was it about, like if you can distill it, rather than a whole, you know, feeling like you've got to be super wise here or anything, what was it about, what was the thing that you really took away from having to structure a narrative that you took into Treeless? Because Treeless is, a, is um, it's less impressionistic in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I think after in, Bet in Between Days, which yeah. was originally something that I thought it could be an experimental film or it could be completely an experiential or impressionistic mm. film. Mm. So, after that, I really wanted to do something that was much more structured and go into the other extreme of building a narrative or telling a very narrative in a traditional sense um, story. So it was just a challenge for me as a filmmaker going into the next process for me because I wanted to see what I might have missed um, from not going to film school, per se. Mm. So um, I would have to say Trila's was that kind of trying to, trying my best at, you know, a, attempt at telling a traditional narrative story. It's so <laughs> fascinating though, sorry, because it is, it's, the story is really beautifully structured, but you can't help but avoid chaos because you, she's yeah. telling the story about two really young girls. Like, so you've mm -hmm. got, how old are the actors that you were at the center of your film? They're four and six. Yeah, right. So a really structured film about a four and a six film. Yeah. <laughs> um, and presumably yeah. then some professional actors working around them. Yes. 
So we have a clip which actually touches on this exact thing. Do you want to introduce that or should we play it and then reflect on it? I think they could just watch yeah. it. Okay, all right, so let's play this clip from Treeless Mountain. <laughs> So the film is <clears throat> full of beautiful performances from the young girls. Um, but, and it's a story about two girls who've been basically abandoned by mm. their mother. So, so this is a, a good example of, like, how? How, how, does that ha- how does that happen? I think that's a useful question for people. Um, yeah, so when we cast the two young actors, um, Older one, uh, Hee-jun, is six, and her mom came on set with her. And then younger one, um, Sung-hee, was four, and she was in foster care. So her minder from foster care came to work with us. So um, we had adults around them. And basically, we had a schedule of what scenes we were going to shoot, but we realized quickly that all that scheduling will have to go out the window because some mornings the kids were not able to uh, be in specific scene they were supposed to shoot. So we kind of took this approach of kind of, okay, um, we'll mix all these scenes and see which one, what mood they're in when they show up, and then we'll make it into a game. So then if they feel like they're, gonna, they're in a grumpy mood, then maybe they could you know, throw rocks at each other or, you know, or they'll, they'll get in a fight and they'll get that out. Or, okay, they can get, you know, today they're gonna fill piggy banks and count the change. So, you know, so it had to be um, a game that I could set up for them. And um, that seemed to work. And it helped that, you know, this, the film took place in three different locations. So we were moving, so they weren't getting bored. Um, Can I just ask to you yeah. to be, like just, on, it might seem like a really stupid question, but okay, so they arrive and they're grumpy, mm-hmm. and you're like, let's throw rocks. Mm-hmm. Are you going, because I can use that as an equivalent for this point in the script? Yep, yep. You're being quite specific, or are you going, I'll just get it anyway because I might use it? How are you stacking it up against the document? Well, I'm going along with, um, you know, activities that they could do. Like, there's a rock throwing scene, actually, that got cut out of the film. So um, that's (laughs) that's one of them. But, you know, or um, they'll go and catch grasshoppers, you know, or they'll go and... something that was in the script. Yes, and then they'll go grill the grasshoppers and they'll get grossed out, you know. So it's it's like depending on their mood, we will switch scenes around that we need to shoot for that day. Um, Or if they're really in bad mood, then we'll get some sweets and they'll eat that and, you know, things like that. And, And... if they're behaving badly, we'll make them clean the floor. I think that's part of this scene too. Anyway, so it would be you know, just a <laughs> bunch of stuff that's task-based, you know, and then when we're shooting, then I'll feed them some dialogue from the side. So, because with the, you know, there's a framing for the film and right on the edge, I'm sitting there and I, I tell them, okay, say I'm hungry. Okay, I'm hungry, you know? So that's basically how I worked with them. Um, so for this scene, which was quite um, challenging, what I had to do was I had to use he, um, Hyun's mom to get to her, to get to that emotional state. So I asked her mom <laughs> if there's something that Hyun will get upset about, you know, something she would get emotionally easily upset. And then um, she said, she was missing her dad at the moment, so I asked her to kind of use that <laughs> for me in scene. So um, her mom pulled her aside before the scene started on her coverage to tell her something about her dad, news, news from home about her dad, and then we shot the scene. <laughs> <laughs> And it worked. Yeah. 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 And so, and it's a very beautiful film. I highly recommend that people seek it out. But 
So I'm, I'm, I'm going to run us almost straight into our next clip because mm-hmm. it's not unrelated, but it, it extends into different things, which is your next film for Alan. Mm-hmm. So, and we may go back to Treeless, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could just introduce the project of For Alan and what the genesis of that project was, because you had an actor in there who was also a producer, mm-hmm. and just what your curiosity was that took you into that project which also had a child in it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I love working with children. So uh, my next film, for Ellen, was really about... Well, it was about something else that became for Ellen. But initially when I was writing the script, I got stuck around page 30 because the main character was, I think unsettling for me. And originally it was going to be an Asian father who was like in his 60s. And then I couldn't cope with that. And then he became a ghost who was haunting his wife and daughters. And and then, um, but each iteration of the writing, I would get stuck around 30 and then it was just not working. And I, I did, I kept writing, going back to page one and rewriting, rewriting. And then it, it became, um, I mean, it was quite interesting conceptually, but very demanding <laughs> and, and kind of disheartening. Um, but I, I think I did that for, I don't know, a while, maybe five, six months, I can't remember exactly, until one day, I don't know why, but a friend of mine's name kind of popped up that, um, who was a, um, this really, uh, he was, he worked for the Peace Corps for four years. He was in a seminary school to become a priest. He was this kind of iconic angel of a person, you know, deeply compassionate about hum- humanity. And then I thought, oh, it should be his name, which was Joby Taylor. And then ironically, I thought Joby Taylor would be a rock and roll name. He's not a preacher, you know, per se. So it just kind of clicked. I'm like, oh, this guy should be a rock and roller. And he's gonna, he abandoned his baby when he was, when she was, you know, young. And then now he's gonna go and meet his daughter for the first time. So um, it just clicked all together because of that name. And then it was about a month or two after that happened, the story shaped. So um, originally, I sent the script to Paul, thinking that he might want to take Paul um, Dano. Dano. Yeah. Paul Dano, and I thought he might want to take the lawyer um, character role mm-hmm. because it's a younger guy. Mm-hmm. And then the Joby Taylor, the rock and roller, was going to be in mid to late thirties, so older person who's kind of washed up and missed his chance to become this big rock rock star, essentially. <laughs> but um, after he read the script, he called me back and he said, hey, what if I was the rock and roller? You know, I said, that's interesting because then he will become a younger dad, you know? And then in a sense, it will give um, more potential for him to change, you know? So we kind of worked on that and I asked him if, yeah. So we kind of, we shaped the character and he became a producer and then we, um, were able to make the film. Because he was involved? Yes. And, but he was involved in the development of the character? Um, in a way, yes, mm. of the younger character of Joby Taylor. It's mm-hmm. interesting that the, um, the genesis of that character after that long period of time of coming to it was a kind of opposite, that you found a quite inspiring white light-like person that you knew and then mm-hmm. blipped it and turned it into a rock and roller who was washed up, isn't it? I mean, that's just <laughs> yeah. got some tension in it. That's interesting, yeah. even creatively. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to watch a clip from this film because, and I think we will set this clip up a little bit because I think it's interesting for people to know. Can you just, it happens kind of mid to two-thirds of the way through the story, is that right? Yeah, two-thirds yeah. way into the story. And... Um, he he go he goes up to the small town in northern um, New York State to sign the divorce papers. His wife ha, um, is remarrying. She wants him to um, sign the divorce papers and also give her the custody of 
their daughter because he has not seen her since she was born. So he he uh, drives up there thinking that, yeah, of course, you know, I'm a rock and roller. I'm not good. That's fine. So he basically goes up there to sign the papers and then uh, on the condition that he's, he gets to spend one day with her, you know, so anyway. So this is as part of their one day. That's clip two, thank you. <laughs> Do you want okay. to talk a little bit about the process around that? Um, so we shot the film. On, I mean, we shot the movie on film on thirty-five, and um, we knew it was going to be a long scene of her walking through those aisles, you know, of picking out the toy. And we planted that science kit at the at that aisle, and you know we gave her a path and stuff. And actually, that clip is a lot longer at the top, but we were all sweating because the film was running through the camera <gasps> like this. And we're like, oh no, she's not gonna get there in time. But we also did not know. I mean, I had no idea she was gonna take such a meticulous care in looking at every single toy along the way. And because I told her the task, okay, look at the toy boxes, you know, and then get to the science kit. So, but, I thought she would be like any other kid, like my daughter, who would just run through the toy store and get, you know get to the prize. But she was not that person. She was <laughs> so. It was great because Paul also at the same time was like, oh okay, you know. And then we were all behind the camera going, oh okay. <laughs> How many more feet? How many more feet? So um, I just love that moment. <laughs> and that film, um, that film also had Jenna Malone in it, which is yeah. interesting because you, you worked with her in the next film. And you were working with Paul, who had worked on the character this time and, and was also a producer. Did it feel like the way that you were collaborating with the actors on this third film, did mm -hmm. it start to feel like your process was shifting and changing in response to being three films in? Uh, I didn't feel like my process was changing so much as kind of incorporating more elements or different elements, you know, um, especially because I was working with Shailena, who's young um, and unexperienced actor, and working with Paul and I know, I mean, I know now far more than I did back then that um, actors have different ways of working and their process is different. Mm -hmm. And um, working with Paul was pretty much like working with a non-actor in the sense that he showed up, he drove the car um, to set of the character Joby's car and he would show up dressed as Joby Taylor every morning on set. And he was Joby Taylor in, until he went back to the motel room. So it was an incredible process for me working with him. Yeah, know, right. So. And that film has a, um, a very strong and particular ending. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. I really want to talk about endings. We're going to start talking about endings because um, for those of you who have, or when you see um, So's films, they she has a um, a real curiosity and interest in the way that you um, <clears throat> you end your films, ensuring that it's not over. That's mm -hmm. a it's a very distinct um, feeling that you get at the end of each of your films. It's it's not like we get let off the hook and it's all resolved and like, great, I feel better for seeing that film and off I go, everything's tied up, life's perfect. You really, um, you, you, there's things that you're interested in around endings, it seems to me, that are about allowing things to linger or stay active. Does that feel like it's, um, as I think people saw from that very first clip in the first, in your first film, In Between Days, mm -hmm. is that something that you, um, feel conscious of? Like, are the words that I'm saying like, yeah, yeah, I kind of know this, or is it something you feel like you're discovering, or 
And, and what is that, and I'm giving you about three questions here, so decide what you want to answer, but what does that say? <laughs> so you're like, what? Um, it's, it's very interesting in terms of getting to that point too, in terms of what it says about structure for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always kind of think in a way that at the end, I want the audience to feel like you've had experienced a slice of a whole pie of this character or these characters within the, within the film. Mm-hmm. So that like they kind of continue to live on after you leave. So that you know, for instance, in Joby Taylor's case, um, at the end he um, <laughs> he does something really bad. But so uh, like part of his true nature, um, you know, he um, his girlfriend comes and shows up, who's Jenna Malone, and then he kind of abandons her in the motel room and hitches a a ride with a truck at the end, which is, <laughs> and he just leaves, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of like, like a reflect, reflection of his nature of how he, he ended up not having relationship with his daughter, you know, mm-hmm. so, and then also, you know, kind of um, a sense of where, you know, sense that he's going someplace, but where is he, where can he possibly go, you know, so I kind of want people at the end of the film, think about that, like, what are the decisions he's making? How did he end up there? And where can he go? What are his possibilities? So that it's not so um, easy to be, like, judgmental one way or the other. I feel like when I write these stories about these characters, I kind of want to understand them better at the end. But at the same time, it should be like an organic process where they can move on after, you know what I mean? Because it's not, it shouldn't be the end in a sense of trying to understand that person. It's it, it's a con, con, continuation, continuation of that process. Yeah, 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 and like you're designing it, you're design. it feels like you're designing it structurally so as that we're left with a sense of many questions. Does that... You know, what, yeah. ha- what happens next, literally being one of the questions. Yeah. yeah. And that can be, I mean, I, I, I do understand that that can be quite frustrating for an audience because like, you want an answer in a way, but um, I do feel like it's far more interesting mm. if you have mm. questions afterwards and it's, mm. it's like reflection on yourself or somebody you know mm. and, and also trying to, I don't know, find some sort of meaning. Yeah, no, no, I think that's right. I think that's what's so clever about them is that you're left wrestling, you know? It's very active for the viewer. um, Segwaying towards the next clip, um, were the endings for all of the films before Love Song scripted as being what they were by the time you had completed cutting the film? Did the endings... Were they as scripted? Yes. I, uh, mm. In Between Days, Treeless, and For Ellen were scripted endings exactly. I mean, I shot it exactly as uh, was scripted. Um, for Ellen's ending is like an homage to Five Easy Pieces. Mm-hmm. So it, it was very clear. I mm-hmm. actually had that ending in the beginning, like when I mm-hmm. first writing the story that I'm gonna end there, you know? So I knew where the story was gonna go um, and figure, you know, and it was just a matter of how to nuance his journey to get there. Yeah. So, um, and then I have to say the only film that I didn't have a concrete ending was for Love Song. And uh, my partner and I, we wrote two different endings and then we uh, shot both endings for the film. Yeah. You don't believe me. No, I do believe you. I just think it's so great. I mean, it's so great because it's so not totally, you know, controlled, you know. But but do you know why? Oh, why? Do you know why you didn't? You know, my. I mean, <clears throat> why I didn't have an. Yeah, ending for yeah, yeah, yeah. What oh, yeah, yeah, because my husband and I were arguing, and he was saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, he was like, you're a pessimist, you have <laughs> negative view on human nature, and you're a downer about love stories, and, and, I, and I would say, you're romantic, you have one-sided view about love, it's not always a happy ending. <clears throat> so then we agreed to write both and shoot both, yeah. 
And now we'll play the clip. Yeah. So you can see who won. <laughs> Let's see who won. <laughs> I should have uh, paused it. Um, I don't know if you were all there yesterday for Love Song, like part one. Part one was two story. I mean, two friends who go on this road trip. They have this romantic moment, and then they split up. They don't talk to each other for three years. And then uh, Mindy, who's played by Jenna Malone, invites um, Sarah, who's played by Riley Q, to come to her wedding. And um, um, Mindy's getting married. And now they have another encounter during bachelorette party. They hire a stripper, they go to a nightclub, they go dancing, and then they have another romantic encounter. And then this is the uh, morning of the wedding day. And then uh, Mindy's having doubts and she wants to go for a walk, so. <laughs> so you won. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you? What? Did you win? That was you winning, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, to be fair, so we did a first cut with a happy ending, as in like Mindy and Sarah stayed together. And then we showed it to, and I, I said, fine, let's, let's see if it works. And then we showed it to our producers and investors, and they're like, that doesn't feel right. I'm like, great. <laughs> I let them have their first pass, and then they didn't like that. So I put my ending in there, and they're like, that seems right. So, so which one did you shoot first on the day? How did you do it process-wise? Well, I, I think this goes back to like what you could do with the footage you gather, because on the day of the shoot on the lake um, for the final scene there, we ran out of time because I wanted to do all these walking shots of them in the in the uh, trees and path and with the water and stuff. So I spent loads and loads of time doing that and I just loved it. And then by the time they got to the, uh, the rock where they're supposed to have this emotional dialogue between them and declare their love and stuff, we kind of ran out of time. And it was also freezing cold. So they were both shivering and they're saying they love each other and it just, um, yeah, so then um, it didn't work, mm. essentially. Um, so, I mean, we shot everything that day, mm. uh, but <clears throat> when I got to the editing room with the footage, I realized um, I really wanted them walking a lot. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to use that footage because I shot a lot of it and then put their, um, you know, the conversation between them over it, as mm -hmm. if it's it's like, you know, they're communicating somehow as they're walking, everything mm -hmm. they need to say. Um, and that seemed to work, mm -hmm. you know? So it's completely manufactured um, authenticity of emotions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's what I would call it. And uh, thankfully that worked, you know, mm -hmm. but that's not something that I designed Initially, it was just something I had to work with with the material that I had. Mm -hmm. yeah. But did you shoot the sad ending first? Just to, for a way the to describe it, the ending. ending where they didn't get together first, literally the wedding. Like, oh, or was okay. the ending oh, that geez. you shot? Yeah, can you recall what you did? Yeah, we shot the wedding first because a lot of the ensemble cast, some of them had to leave early, so all the walking and then and then the happy ending that was supposed to happen on the rock and, and during their walk so it was, was the last there. day of the shoot. Yeah, yeah right, so, right. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it's so, we're gonna, I'd like to move into television at mm -hmm. this point because sure. we're immersed in these, this very much your process, mm -hmm. um, very much stories that are of interest and importance to you um, and, and your style, you know, we're seeing it shift and yet still have a similar notes and integrity in it. So what has it been like for you to, um, obviously be able to go and earn money, which is great in TV, but um, to walk into other people's environments. And I'd love to start mm -hmm. by asking you about Transparent. Yeah. Because it's got, there's been a bit written about the process of mm -hmm. Transparent and there's an exercise that I understand that's, I know a little bit about and I'd love to know if you, if this was part of the process for you called The Box. 
which I've read about. Do you want to just talk about yeah. stepping into that world and what it's like leaving your own, being the leader of your own Yeah, um, I shadowed a friend of mine, Stacey Passan, who's also an independent filmmaker. She was directing an episode of Transparent before me. So I shadowed her set. So I kind of got an, um, like an intro of how the, you know, shooting an episode might be. Um, one of the things that, like for me, reflecting back on that experience, I, I loved it. So I thought, oh, this is how TV's gonna be. It's gonna be like this jam session where the writer and the director and then you know the creator of the show and then DP, we all get together if the scene's not working and you solve it right there and it's not just on you to fix this problem. But you, know, you have like a, a great group of collaborators and that's what it felt like working on Transparent. But um, as I found out, Later, it's not at all also <laughs> transparent. <laughs> it was very much the exception of um, the work process on, on t uh, TV directing. So um, the box is basically every morning at call, um, call time, everyone gets together in a circle. That's like everyone in the crew and also cast member. And you kind of share things that are going on in your life briefly. You step, the, you step on the box and some people, if they feel like singing, they would sing or, you know, or they, they'll talk about how much they miss their, you know, baby boy who was born, you know, a month ago. Or it, it was very like personal and intimate and everyone was kind of part of this family. Um, and I think that really carried into the process of working and everyone really enjoyed being there together, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was really amazing. And you, you did say to me that, um, that somehow that Jill Soloway has mm -hmm. managed to create an environment where the ownership feels shared. Yes, and, and I think that's the main thing about TV in a way, um, I think, well, yeah, in Transparent, you feel like the ownership is shared, you know, in, a, in, in the responsibility of like making a perfect episode or, or um, uh, delivering a great, you know, visually stunning and perfectly acted episode does not weigh on you alone, you know, or it, the, and nor on the writer per se, you know, mm -hmm. so, um, that was kind of really wonderful. I think what happens to some independent directors who go into TV directing is thinking that I'm the director coming onto the set and I'm gonna make decisions and I have ownership and it's completely not the case. You kind of have to leave that all um, behind as you enter. Um, it's very, you just don't know going from show to show what kind of environment you might uh, walk into. So I think it's very important that, um, I mean, for me, I've, I've learned this along the process and, and it's only been a little over a year for me directing on TV shows. So, so you've done maybe four or five shows now, haven't you? Episodes on? I think I've done seven or eight. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So far. Yeah. Well, well that's yeah, a lot in a year. But, yeah. yeah. So um, I think for me, like the biggest, um, I, I mean, I try to, with my, you know, agents to pick the shows that are interesting, mm. you know, so that's helpful. And then also find the shows that are uh, more like transparent, as in like people who are there love being there, right? So, or they're really dedicated to the show. So everyone has the same goal of delivering the best episode along mm -hmm. with you. So mm -hmm. it's pretty much very like collaborative effort and you, you go there to um, do your best. <laughs> have there been any basic craft things that have been either really daunting or really liberating about setting into, because presumably some of those environments are a bit more moneyed than making an independent project. Yes. So have you had to yes. freak out or upskill or has there been anything there that? Yeah, I think time, I, I think one thing that carries over really well from independent filmmaking into TV episodic directing is that, you know, you, learn how to manage your time really well as an independent filmmaker, you know, and how to stretch your money to last, you know, and how to put that on the screen for your own film. So coming into TV directing, you're like really 
under a lot of pressure to sh make your days and make sure you cover certain pages of a script. And um, it really helped me also that I know how to edit my own material. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, I, I going on to show, I know how to, I know what I need to cover and get to edit and, and finish a scene. So I kind of pre-edit everything and I do a lot of storyboards before going into the shoot. Yeah, yeah. right. So, and so what, what um, have you got an example of, say, an opposite environment to Transparent that you stepped into in terms of television? Something that was maybe a lot more structured where someone really did own the show? You don't have to name yeah. the show if you don't want to. Yeah. But well, I, I think that one of the uh, most opposite show I've done is a, a law procedural show for a network. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's like they have three cameras and they just kind of hose down the courtroom. <laughs> it's like, it's really, um, I think, you know, because there's so many law shows on TV, they have very, like, systematic way of shooting it and how to represent, you know, everything. So it was very, it, it was eye-opening to me in a sense that this is completely the opposite of how I would ever work in my life yeah. on a film. So yeah. it was good to learn, you know, but um, I wouldn't want to do it again. Were so. you able to yeah. create flow inside something that was that structured, structured or rigid? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's about, I mean, it's, you know, whether you're, for me, I, I was teaching for four years and then I decided to go into TV directing just you know, because I felt like it was something I wanted to try. And then also it offered um, opportunities for me to keep directing in between my films, mm. as well as, you know, being financially stable. So it offered all these things. So I think going into TV episodic directing, I felt like this is an opportunity for me to try different things. For instance, I just did a, a horror show and, and um, I learned a tremendous amount about uh, my weaknesses as well as my strengths from doing that show. And it was, it was something that I would have never done you know, on my own. I would not be sitting down and writing a script for a horror film, per se. So um, things like that has been very good. Um, I think trying to find your own flow, I think it's, it's probably exercising a very specific um, part of my brain that's directed at um, being a director. Anyway, <laughs> it's very targeted muscle that I'm exercising within the TV episodic directing, right? So I try to expand that as much as I can. Mm. Um, yeah. So when you say <clears throat> you've um, had a light shone on um, what your strengths and your weaknesses were by mm -hmm. say that last one, where does that, given that we started in a way by talking about the space between your projects, mm -hmm. how is this foray, and, which is quite dynamic, into going into all these other mm -hmm. environments and presumably you're learning a lot about yourself and other ways of working, how does that start to propel your curiosity back towards your next project that's yours? Does it have an impact on it in some way? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think now, you know, I'm writing my next script and I feel like certain elements are really not as daunting as it used to be before, you know? Yeah, so um, I feel like I'm adding to the options that I might have to certain scenes or how I might design that scene or how I might envision certain aspects of my own scenes within the story that I want to do. So I, I, I think it kind of adds to like my goodie bag mm. that I could pull up, mm. you know? So I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's great, know? really, isn't it? Okay, well, let's, let's throw open to um, the people out here in terms of questions and see what we've got. Great. I have a question more so just on a personal note. It, mm -hmm. it sounds like you work with your partner quite intimately. Uh, can you talk a bit about that and your experience with, with him having being your partner literally in life mm -hmm. and in work? Do 
you want the truth? <laughs> um. <laughs> authenticity and preaching. Uh, <laughs> totally, two parts. Or manufactured authenticity. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe, yeah. So there, you know, there are pros and cons, and we've been together for like 20, over 20 years, my husband and I, so we know, I mean, we've been working together for quite a long time, so what we do is um, we have this rule that there's only one bus driver on the bus, so that is whoever is the writer director of the film that we're working on, you know, so the other person is like, you know, map reader or GPS guide or whatever, or the coffee fetcher, I don't know. So the other person works as a support, you know, like a producing support person. So we've done that and that's been quite useful and successful because what we do sometimes is also we're both editors, so we'll swap projects and we'll edit on each other's films. Mm. So um, we do that and for me, when I'm writing, if I feel like I'm, I'm too drained to continue writing, I will bring him on to help me finish writing. So, and, and that's been tremendous for me because he knows how um, the story developed originally and we were constantly in you know, discussion about his film and my film and story ideas. So um, it's pretty handy, you know, and uh, we always cover each other on sets. So if I'm moving on from one scene to the next, he would, he would be the person, if there's something missing, he'll come up and say, hey, make sure you get the shot of hands because you might need that to edit. You know, especially if I'm setting up a single take shot, I'm single, you know, um, single take shot. Yeah, okay. So then he's like, you might want a safety. So, um, and I do the same for him, you know. Um, so it's been great we fight a lot. And then usually when we're co-writing or co-editing something and we don't agree on something, the person who's most passionate about their view wins. So <laughs> it gets a little loud. <laughs> yeah. And the backup there. Follow up, uh, did you get together with your husband first? Or did you work with the first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all about brand now. Yeah. Uh, we met in Chicago, and he was studying sculpture, and I was studying painting and performance art. Yeah. So, so we met long before we started to make films. Yeah. There's someone way up the back here. Um, could you give some examples of with on Facebook talk about the shared ownership? Uh, give us examples of how that works on the day. When you the process of I'm sorry. Yeah. She's, she's asking um, for some mm -hmm. specific examples of when you're um, working on Transparent, how the notion of shared ownership actually plays out practically if you're trying to solve problems or... Yeah, um, a lot of times, I mean, on Transparent, the writer, um, Bridget, was on set. And a lot of TV shows have the writer come on set when you're shooting. Um, so when certain scene was not blocking properly or if the scene was not working because the dialogue was off, then we would have actors and myself and Bridget all get together and talk about why it wasn't working and we'll shift it and change the line there and then shoot again, you know, mm. so. Yes, yeah. Um, I noticed that like, in, like the two examples in between days and, um, like the shots you use uh, like very kind of have a sense of intimacy in the amount of close-ups you have. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of like the cinematography, do you, how far back do you think about those kind of decisions? Is it like before the DOP comes on, do you pitch those kind of ideas or is it sort of like a collaborative process with them to get that kind of like um, that sense? Did people hear that question? About close-ups? There was a question about um, how early in the process so thinks about um, this, your shooting, your, how do you say it? <laughs> Mise en scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, in between days working with Sarah, I, I told her basically, like, I want just all close-ups, all close-ups. It was my first film. I had no idea what I was doing. So I told her, like, I want just, like, really close. I want to see, like, her skin pores and stuff. And she was like, oh, that's not good. So she, <laughs> she pulled back just a little bit. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. So um, I wanted to get closer. She wanted to pull back. We compromised on, um, on in between days. But I just love close-ups, you know. I think 
now that I'm a little older, maybe I like it a little less. But I just love like being in their face, and um, and treeless working with Anne. Um, we kind of talked about like in general what kind of feel we wanted, you know. And and um, I've worked with her before. She shot my husband's first feature, and so I knew how she worked, and she. Um, she kind of knew how I wanted to work, so we had no. I mean, we. It, it was like, it was seamless working with her. You know, she showed up in in Korea. I think a week before we started shooting, and then we went. You know, we were prepping, and then we just started to shoot, and it was just kind of flowing with her. Um, and then with Reed on for Ellen, we sat down and went through each scene and talked about how we were going going to frame. On, on for Ellen, and um, yeah, and then love song. I had two DPs uh, with Cat. I had some references that I were I showed her, um, and then with Guy who shot the second, um, same thing. I wanted part two of love song to look quite different than part one, so I switched to a different DP to do very different, like kind of slightly different to give you. This feeling that it's not, yeah, it's the same film, but not quite the same people, you know. So That's interesting. Yes, down the front here. Um, I just had a question, just regarding your filmography and all your, all your TV work that you've done so far. Um, do you ever feel stylistically that you have to be cohesive in going from film to film or from uh, all your TV work? Do you feel like you have to be? You know, you kind of have to stand out with each different work. Would you feel like you have to make it cohesive in some way? I'm just going to mm -hmm. share that question sure. with the room. The question is just about whether So feels she has to be cohesive with her visual style going from film to film or moving between television and film. Um, no, not necessarily. I, I think right now um, I feel like I want to do something different but same, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think about that kind of like, oh, should it be cohesive per se? But um, I, I do want to get a sense that I am trying something new as a filmmaker, you know, either within the story itself or in challenging myself to do something different. Um, I don't know if that means I have to write the story myself or if I'm adapting a book or if a, a good script comes to me, then I'll take that on. But I just, I, I think it just depends on what I'm drawn to as a person at that time, you know? So as far as TV work comes, um, comes um, to me, I try to do TV work that I kind of find interesting in a sense that it's gonna give me a different experience than what I've had before. So that's kind of been the decision-making process for me. Mm. So. Yes. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the um, challenges working with like non-actors and in-between mm -hmm. days versus people like Jenna and Paul and like how your directing might um, shift or what the like, yeah, I guess how your directing changes when you're working with non-actors versus for like quite experienced um, people. Did you, did the room hear that? Yep. Great. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't, in, in my film work, when I'm working with non-actors and uh, actors, I don't recall that being a big change for me. You know what I mean? I, I treat like non-actors in the same way as I would actors in a way. Um, so maybe my directing style is not very good, but I need to get better or something. But you know the thing that, um, uh, is interesting about TV directing is that there's so many, um, you know, I've, I've done seven or eight TV shows and there's so many actors in each one of those shows. So I kind of have to learn how to be a better director working with actors actually. So I have to say in that sense, I'm getting loads of experience, you know, because each one on each of those shows have actors who come from different methods or different processes. So I have to figure that out and I have to learn how to speak with them and communicate. So I think that's been a great experience in a way. So, 
Yes, over there. You, um, Andy. What's it like, sort of adding to that question, um, if you're coming into like a season three or four of the TV show, so it's mm -hmm. really established, and you yes. potentially know the show better than you might, not you, but the director might, um, how, how, how's that negotiating that with the actors? <laughs> okay. So if I go into third or fourth season yeah, of a group, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, when you go on a show and it's like third or fourth season of a show such as Transparent or Halt and Catch Fire or whatever show that, you know, you get invited into, I think it's, ma it's, it's just, just basic, I think, manners, you know? You, you go in as a guest, you're a guest in their home, really, you know? So you don't go in there thinking that I'm going to redecorate your house. You go in there and, <laughs> and you, you try to be a very polite, you know, kind of guiding force or a collaborator. Um, so I think it's just, it's just a matter of that, uh, I don't know, it, it's just a process, but uh, it's also, if you have respect for their work, then they'll have respect for your work. So it's just kind of building mutual respect and trust in a way, yeah, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Hey, um, and you oh, seem obviously very capable. Like you're doing so much. Okay. You're doing TV, your own films. Um, it sounds like sitting your own films. You're, you're working on the fly. You're looking for your partner, um, your child. How do you manage it all? Oh, how do I manage it all? I well, don't really. You, <laughs> you hold it together and you keep going. You're producing such a high level of work. Oh, I, I don't know. Thank you for saying that. Um, I don't really think I do high amount of work. Um, I think the key in my life is that I have a really great partner. So I think I have to give loads of credit to him because he's holding down the fort with our two daughters while I'm here. So, and then also, you know, um, when he is down on his work, I try to be the supporting force behind him. And when I'm down about my work, he tries to be the supporting force behind me. So I got really lucky in finding someone early in my life who could be, you know, the support system for one, one another. But um, if, if you're not as uh, fortunate as that, I recommend that you find somebody you know, who's a friend or sister or brother who could do that for you. And I feel like that's really key to finding your, your tribe or partner to give you support for long-term long support, you know? So I think that's probably how I do it. <laughs> so. And on that note, we have to finish our session. This session is presented by Images and Sound. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and JNA Productions. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Auckland Tourism Events and Economic Development, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. VoiceOver is provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Beer.